welcome to another episode of Decoded. My name is Sydney Lai, and today in this episode, we are going to do something super different. So can we just like scratch the intro music? Like, let's just... Okay, we, we just killed it. Great. Thank you. I'm really excited to talk today about different blockchain protocols and, and really like introducing that type of development into the dev tech stack, right? So today at OutSystems, we are going to have a conversation with Chainlink. And for those who are actually not familiar with OutSystems, we are a developer tool where you can build enterprise level web and mobile applications, but we also allow the interoperability of various protocols. So if you check online, I have a buddy, Rui, right? He has built an Ethereum wallet with the OutSystems IDE. There is Venturas, the European car company that incorporates a blockchain protocol for their fleet of cars and navigating the logistics of that with OutSystems and blockchain. So I thought, you know what? Why don't we just have one episode dedicated to exploring how traditional developers can also be building with new developer tools and new developer stacks. If this is a topic that you're into, just like let me know on Twitter. If you're like, hey, you know, that was a fun episode. I don't need every episode to be about that. I guess also let me know. We're definitely going to experiment. I mean, I just cannot wait. I'm going to go ahead and introduce you to Pat in just a moment. Let's go. I am super excited to introduce Patrick Collins today from Chainlink. Patrick is a software engineer and a developer advocate at Chainlink. Hello, hello. Welcome, Pat. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm super excited to be here. I'm super excited to be on it. Are they going to see us too, or is this mostly just podcast? No, this is just oh, this so is make, just you and me. I can make crazy faces. We can make no faces. We can wear our pajamas. The audience has no idea what we're wearing. No idea. Okay, well, I'm wearing, but... <laughs> I'm wearing a, a Vitalik costume, oddly enough. So those of you listening, that's what I'm wearing right now. So Vitalik, like, you mean the Vitalik? The Vitalik or do you mean... Yes, the Ethereum founder. Right. In the spirit of blockchain. I don't know what a Vitalik costume would look like, actually. Maybe I'll be an ETH logo. Maybe that, that's a little bit more sensical. I think he usually wears t-shirts <laughs> that has like a graphic design, like yeah. a like a crypto kitty or some kind of like meme on his t-shirt. Yeah, right. Yeah. He's, he's wearing something, yeah. something clever. And yes, absolutely. Super funky, right? But I think that as we're nerding out, I definitely want to take like 17 million steps back because this episode, unlike the rest of the season, is actually very experimental. I really wanted to explore developer tools in season two. And even more specifically, I wanted to reserve one episode to talk about developer tools for Web3. And in the industry between you and I, you know, Web3, we use it almost colloquial for any kind of like blockchain technologies, right? When you're using developer tools, building for blockchain I would also say like the types of folks that I usually hang out with, especially on the podcast, you know, the community that I really talk to, they're not Web3 natives, maybe. I don't know. I think they, we definitely have some experimentations with blockchain. OutSystems as an IDE actually provides interoperability with various protocols that you can build on, right? But I think for today, I definitely want to explore developer tools in Web3, but also from the perspective of Chainlink and also 
coming from you, right? Like, did you previously work in a traditional stack before you joined a chain link? So I, I kind of wanted to understand that transition as a developer and then also understanding the origin story behind a chain link as a developer tool in the Web3 space. Yeah, so there's a lot of stuff here, definitely a lot of stuff. And it makes sense for you saying this is an experimental experimental episode here because there's, there's a lot to go over. For those of you who kind of are newer to the blockchain, newer to the smart contract development world, Yes, as Sydney mentioned, you know, we usually call this kind of the, the Web3 world. And it's almost like a catch-all for anything related to blockchain, anything related to like the internet of money, programmable money, programmable smart contracts. That's what we refer to as Web3. And you'll hear us refer to the traditional kind of where we are now as Web2, where you have like your open, uh, your open banking APIs. That's what you're using to to make transactions and you have uh, the centralized banks and, and the centralized services that do the exchanges of fiat currency. When we're talking about Web3, it's these these programmable transactions, which that's what we're probably gonna talk a lot about here. So there's, there's a number of places we can start here, Sydney. We can talk about what smart contracts are, what just to like, give the people a baseline? Is that where we should start? You know what? Actually, I would love to hear your perspective of like your transition from traditional tech stacks into a Web3 tech stack. And then we can quickly just even set the context of like, yeah. 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 So my my background actually is more fintech, which in my mind, now that I you know work in, in the blockchain realm, I still think of blockchain as fintech but just like the next generation of fintech. So so I worked at a hedge fund for a couple of years as a support engineer. And then I also worked at a, a traditional financial data provider. So we had a, a like a financial API where people would, you know, digest the API and they'd use it in their, their quant models, right? They get the price of Tesla, they get the price of Apple, whatever. And it's like, okay, I bet you this, it's gonna go up. I'm gonna put it in my model. Here's my value, my quality model, whatever, whatever it may be. And actually it was there when I came across Chainlink and I came across smart contracts and that's where I learned about it. Because previously actually at the hedge fund that I worked at, we had had a conversation in 2017, 2018, around when Bitcoin was peaking, because people, you know, obviously were talking about it a lot. And the sentiment was basically, this is, this is a bubble. These are like the tulips in the 40s or whatever, 50s, I forget when it was. In the Netherlands. Yep. 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 And they were saying, yeah, this is just kind of a fad, right? This is going to die out. No big deal. And that felt like that was the sentiment of the entire industry. Like nobody was really paying attention. Everyone felt like this was kind of this fake play money. And I had the same, the same thought. I actually remember in 2013, I was in a class and my professor was talking about Bitcoin. And I was like, this sounds stupid. Like, I don't care, whatever. Right. Oddly enough, here I am now, right. <laughs> Working at a, a, a decentralized protocol. But yeah, so I, I was kind of in the mindset, this is kind of silly. Great, I can write some algorithmic trading models that do arbitrage or something like that. Cool, I'll do that. That sounds like fun. And then over time, I really didn't think of it at all until I got a call from this group looking to bring data on chain, right? Because I was working for a financial data provider. They reached out to us. They were like, hey, we'd love it if we could you know, do something together, bring your data on chain. And I was like, well, why would you want to do that? Bitcoin is a currency that doesn't make any sense how do you bring data on chain and that's when i got to start learning about smart contracts and what they actually do right and i started learning about okay what does this data do so th that was my introduction to the realm and i just kind of basically fell down the rabbit hole for lack of a better term the more i read about it the more interesting things i i've up and the more i uncovered the more i was like holy this is a whole new world this can fix a lot of things right so the simplest explanation of a smart contract 
It is an auto-executing, decentralized, programmable agreement or piece of code that, yeah, it gets auto-executed on-chain without a centralized intermediary, right? And the centralized intermediary part is kind of the big thing because these smart contracts are attacking this issue of trust, right? And so the easiest example that I like to give is with insurance. When you make an agreement with an insurance provider or with an insurance company, you say, hey, insurance company, I'm going to give you $100 a month or for most of us, it's probably, you know, much more than that, unless our, our companies are covering us, which a lot of us are. I'm going to give you $100 a month. And when a bus hits me, you're going to cover me. Okay, you got me. That's the agreement. Great. Really simple. Now, let's say a bus does hit you, right? You have to trust that they are going to honor the agreement and they're going to bail you out of the hospital. They're going to pay for your medical bill. This is what we want. Obviously, we, there's a lot of trust in their hands to do this. Now, this is where this first issue actually can arise. There's this massive conflict of interest here. Insurance companies, I don't know if you guys know this, but they're not in the business of handing out money and, and handing out checks. That's not typically what they want to do. That's not typically how businesses thrive, right? And yeah, they're really betting no on the fact that you won't get hit by a bus, but they'll still take your money because you're paying the money just in case you do. Yeah, exactly, right? So, And it's, it's kind of not their fault, right? No business is going to live if they have a business model where they give out more money than they get, right? So they don't want to be giving out this money, right? They want to figure out, okay, how can we keep this money? So you can run into this issue, which is called bad faith insurance, where an insurance provider is supposed to pay out and then they don't. And what do you do when this happens? Okay, you're in the hospital, you need to pay a medical bill and you can't. So what do you do? Okay, you take them to court for six months, six to nine months to a year, however long it takes. Maybe you win, maybe you lose, but you still had to go through this whole thing where you got dragged through this pro this long litigation process trying to get your money, and then maybe you win, maybe you lose. If you win, great, you still had to go through the process, and then if you lose, you went through the whole process, and then you still lost, right? So there's this huge issue where it's like, hey, we have this agreement, but I still have to trust that you're going to do the right thing, even though you are highly incentivized to not do the right thing. And so there's this massive issue of trust here in this because there's this conflict of interest, right? It's, it's hard for us to trust them because their motivations are incentivized to not be trustworthy. So smart contracts attack this problem by being these autonomous agreements that nobody owns, right? So when you write, make, and when people make these traditional agreements, like with an insurance provider, it's traditionally with pen and paper or whatever, you know, we do most of it online now, but still the enforcer is going to be like the legislation, right? It's going to be the government, it's going to be the laws, it's going to be rules. In a smart contract world, this agreement gets automatically executed by the code itself, because the code isn't owned by anybody. The contract isn't owned by anybody. So if you make an agreement, it automatically executes. There's no centralized intermediary. Nobody has any influence over what that contract does. This way, you don't actually have to trust the other person is going to do the right thing because doing the right thing is actually infrastructural with a smart contract. And so to me, that was like this mind blowing, like, wait, what? Hold on, wait, what? So the more I learned about it, the more I kind of was like, okay, how do I apply this to finance? And because that's my background, right? This kind of this FinTech world. And I'd re actually recently finished reading like book Flash Boys about like the high frequency traders. If you guys haven't read that, definitely read that it is a marvelous book. It's about um, hedge funds getting mad at other hedge funds because some hedge funds were making the market less fair. And having these smart contracts that are transparent, they uh, attack this issue of centrality, this issue of transparency, this issue of enforcement can fix a ton of these issues 
in the finance realm, making markets more fair, making agreements more fair, making them more transparent. And then obviously in the financial space in particular, and this is where kind of the data talk comes into play, data is easily one of the highest important commodities on the planet, having really good quality data, especially in the fintech realm. And it's no different in the smart contract realm. You need really good data to make these robust agreements, these robust financial instruments. And this is where I started getting more interested and more interested. I was like, oh my goodness, we can make crazy, like decentralized financial instruments. And this is where the term DeFi comes into play, where you can have uh, decentralized exchanges where an exchange, like what we saw with GameStop recently, an exchange actually can't turn off trading because there's no centralized intermediary that even has that power. You can do these transactions much faster and you don't even have clearing houses, which I don't know for those of you who kind of paid attention to that clearing house liquidity was a huge issue in the decentralized world. You don't need a clearing house. You just make the trade and it settles immediately. Something that's interesting is when you make a trade like with Robinhood or, or any trading application, there's generally a, a settlement period and with a decentralized smart contract realm, there is no settlement period. You just trade it, it gets done. It is automatically recorded on the decentralized ledger and just, just like the list goes on and on. So I've talked a lot about smart contract stuff, Sydney. I get very excited here. I know. I mean, I think that when we are in this realm, like when you see the potential of what this stack can do, it is limitless, right? We drink the Kool-Aid, we run towards the moon. And it's like, it's no doubt that this has brought you to Chainlink because it sounds like if you're running a Chainlink node, it allows you to provide external data, the value, external data directly to the smart contracts, right? And in the Web3 space, like it's so important to run a node because these nodes it handles the APIs, right? It fulfills the requests for whatever API stack that you're trying to build. So there's, I think a huge piece is understanding that like, no matter if you're developing in a traditional sense or in the Web3 sense, there needs to have that duality of stacks, that duality of stacks. You can't just be a Web3 developer and you can't just be a Web2 developer, right? And so I think that that's why the developers in this ecosystem, like what you just described from smart contracts all the way up to DeFi, this is a very, I don't know if nascent is the right word. It's, it's a smaller community, right? Like even in 2018, there was only like, only like 500 Solidity developers, right? Now there's definitely more. There's definitely more. And I think for context, like those who know how to program in Solidity, it's primarily for the Ethereum protocol. It's derived from JS, derived from C++, derived from, there's one more I'm forgetting. Python, Python, Python as well, right? And so like the fact that you and I are so jazzed about this, <laughs> my question comes to like, so then why was Chainlink created, right? Like, why is it so important to like, to protect your oracles? Let's get into that. Yeah. So I kind of went off on a tangent there. I actually didn't quite finish answering your question there, Sydney. You're like, how did you get into this? And I was like, oh, smart contracts. They do all this crazy, awesome stuff. <laughs> just um, start yelling. Right, yeah, yeah, right. Just start screaming over here. Take off my Vitalik costume and, and show, show that I'm a buffacorn. Uh, that's a that's an Ethereum joke for all you Web2 uh, web peeps out there. But yeah, so somebody from like the Chainlink community had approached me saying, hey, we'd love to get your data. I started reading more into it. And yeah, I just kind of fell in love and I, I started running some infrastructure because I was doing a lot of, I was doing a lot of infrastructure. I was building a lot of infrastructure uh, where I was too. And um, yeah, then I got more and more into it. And then I ended up 
I run my own infrastructure company as well. And then I also work on Chainlink. So, but yeah, so, so building these smart contracts, building these, these DeFi applications or, or any of these smart contract applications, right? Building anything nowadays, right? You need good data. You need quality data. And it's even more important in the smart contract realm, right? The reason that these smart contracts are so amazing is, is you know, what I was just talking about is that they're, they're decentralized, right? The logic on them is written in a decentralized manner. Now, if you have your backend, which I'm going to refer to the backend here as like your Solidity, your Ethereum, your Polygon, your Avalanche, these are other uh, like smart contract enabled platforms. For those of you unfamiliar, you write your smart contracts on one of these platforms, right? Your logic layer is now decentralized. Great. You have a decentralized logic layer. That's the purpose of writing smart contracts to have this decentralized logic layer. Now, if you introduce a data layer, where you get data from different sources, right? The way that kind of Web2 works is you get them from APIs, right? You call an API and you get that data. Now, if you go through all this trouble of bringing data on chain in a, excuse me, of writing a smart contract in a decentralized manner, but you take the data and bring the data on in a centralized manner, well, now you have a decentralized logic layer, a centralized data layer, and you've basically defeated the purpose of building on blockchain at all. Right? You might as well just build your whole application in Python, JavaScript, whatever. So Chainlink takes this and says, okay, data is incredibly important. If we want to just stick with doing fun token swaps and we don't ever want to like break down this walled garden that is blockchain and interact with the real world, well, we need to because we want these smart contracts to have an effect on our everyday lives. So Chainlink actually allows this data layer to be brought on in a decentralized manner as well. So without going into too much of the details here, Chainlink is a decentralized network of independent nodes, very similar to Ethereum, very similar to any other smart contract network, like Matic, like Avalanche, like there's so many more popping up every day now, but it brings on data in a decentralized manner. So you can have your logic decentralized and your data decentralized as well. And, and that's why it's such an important tool in the realm. And actually, yeah, it's funny you were saying like, hey, like back in 2017, there were maybe 500 Solidity devs. And I'm like, oh man, that's so funny because right now actually, we're running a Chainlink hackathon. We had 3,700 signups, uh, which just kind of shows how far we've come. A lot, a lot of devs signing up, a lot of people building. And yeah, they're all looking to use Chainlink and, and bring this data on chain and, and power some of these applications. And, and we see people you know, use Chainlink to build things like Aave, Synthetics, Curve, Yearn.Finance, which now these are all DeFi protocols, decentralized finance protocols, securing tens of billions of dollars which is crazy because we went from 2 billion a year ago and now we're at like 40, 50 billion or something like that. So the space is growing crazy fast too. You're talking about TVL? Yeah, total lock value. Yeah. Okay. 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 I'm trying to wrap my head around what is the challenge that the industry is facing? Is it external computation? Because the value out of Chainlink for DeFi is a completely different value add, right? Like if you look at what happened probably in the late 2020 and late 2020, there was a lot of flash loan attacks, right? And a flash loan attack is basically a developer finds a vulnerability in the smart contracts and they're able to take that away from these liquidity pools. But I think maybe if we're not talking about DeFi, if we're just talking about specifically like just maybe the challenges of external computation, like what's challenging and that like, Chainlink is trying to solve from like a dev tool perspective. Yeah. So, so from a dev tool perspective, it's really just interacting with the real world in a meaningful way. Right. And whether that's bringing data on or sending some type of signal off, it can be either or. 
in the DeFi realm, and right, and especially at the end of 2020, I did a deep dive into pretty much every attack that happened in November. The vast majority of them were Oracle attacks, right? So they were using the flash loan to actually influence the price of an Oracle. So there were a lot of protocols that were using some type of centralized or, or poor Oracle infrastructure. So it's that Web 2 and Web 3 to what you just said earlier. Like, it, this doesn't even, like, it's, it doesn't make sense. You might as well just not have it on two different exactly, stacks. Exactly, right? Okay, okay, you gotcha. Yeah, yeah that exactly. makes sense. Because your logic automatically runs, right? Their smart contract, it doesn't know if, if the data it's getting is bad. It just goes, right? Now, if you own the server, you can say, oh, whoops, our bad, and just, like, go in and change it. You don't own the smart contract though, right? When you deploy a smart contract, it's not yours anymore, right? It's deployed. It's going to run. It's going to do whatever you programmed it to do. So if you feed it bad data, your output is going to be bad. So what some protocols would do is they would just say, okay, cool. We're going to deploy our decentralized logic layer, but like, eh, data layer, we'll run it. It'll be fine. Or we'll just use this one thing. It'll be fine. Or we'll use these couple things. It'll be fine. And then they lose $30 million right? Because somebody bribed them, because somebody hacked it, because it went down for a minute and smart contracts are 24 seven, they don't have an off switch. So they ran into a lot of issues. And, and this is one of the main issues that Chainlink is trying to fix. It's, it's allowing people to build these complex applications using real world data in a secure, reliable, decentralized manner, right? And so not only is the data more decentralized and kind of more in the cryptocurrency spirit, but it's also more secure and more reliable. Chainlink's also trying to attack this problem of just any type of interaction. So they also have a random number. We also have a random number generator, which generates a provably random number because the blockchains are deterministic systems and you can't actually generate true randomness on a deterministic system. That doesn't really make sense. If I roll a dice and I always know it's going to be two, I don't really know how random that is, but you can also do any type of external computation. So as a fun gimmick, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I wrote a smart contract that would order me a pizza, which was really silly, obviously. From anywhere? Could it be like a random pizza with any toppings? So it was a it was a provably random pizza from Domino's. It was a really weird project, but it was really just to kind of showcase, hey, if you can do something, you can do it in a smart contract with Chainlink. Anything's possible. Having this decentralized logic layer and this decentralized data slash computation layer that is Chainlink. Can I also, I'm really, really distracted by this pizza, possibly because <laughs> I'm hungry. Sure. Was it the toppings that were random? Yeah, the toppings were random. So I, I, wrote, a, okay. I wrote a program, generate, yeah. It uses a, a, basically a number, a random number as like a seed for toppings and stuff. And then you just, yeah, you kind of just loop through, like you do a whole bunch of modules to pick toppings. And yeah, I guess- Was it good? There was one pizza that was pretty good. My favorite pizza though was like, um, it was half- no cheese, no toppings, extra garlic or something like that. So it was just crossed, which I thought was hilarious because I still got charged for like a regular pizza for ordering like just crossed from Domino's. That um, is a flash loan attack right there. <laughs> <laughs> they just stole money from just, you. The the just crossed attack, the just crossed yeah, right. contract attack. Yeah. What's your, the original? I don't. At, no, at this point, I got so distracted by I, I this pizza. pizza like, I ruined the conversation. Well, I'm sorry. Well, no, no. I'm like, I think that's another thing, right? Like, oftentimes when people think about building for blockchain, they think, it, of course, it's in a DeFi setting, but also let's even just talk about logistics, right? Like, how does having a developer tool, like securing oracles, how is that also related for logistics? Like, literally, 
what was the logistics of your pizza? Also, was your pizza delivered? I mean, so many, right. So many things. Like I know, I know with like, I'll give a really quick example at OutSystems, we're a developer tool for building web and mobile applications on a very enterprise level. And there is a European car company that I, I butcher the name because it's not a car that exists here. Venturus, Venturus, Venturus. Yeah, it's a European car. And if you look at the logo, it's actually an Ethereum logo, which is kind of weird. Yeah, V-I-N-T-U-R-A-S. I, it's a car. And, but with our IDE, they're able to like build a whole mobile applications to understand and track their fleet of car production and manufacturing. And also the delivery of like, hey, did this car, did this car get to where it needs to be? And so I'm wondering like, is securing Oracle's relevant for the logistics industry, especially like you want to have an Oracle because it, it allows you to transmit data onto blockchain, right? So I was just curious to see like, is it is Chainlink primarily used for the fintech or decentralized finance space? I saw there was a project built on Chainlink, Link My Ride, great logo, <laughs> um, which is like essentially the yeah. decentralized, like the decentralized Uber, Right. Yeah. So Link My Ride was done by a, an, an awesome dev. He's he's actually just recently joined Developer Advocate as well. He's, you'll see Harry around a little bit more. He's got a way of like just building really fun stuff. And what he ended up building was like a way to rent out your Tesla through a smart contract. Right. So to answer your first question, is Chainlink just for the DeFi world? The answer is absolutely not. I mean, I we're doing. I just did a, a super in-depth demo on, on building NFTs with like randomized traits. We call them like dynamic NFTs because they can also change their traits. Like they're not just like a static image. It's like, it could be like a Pokemon character who has stats that change, maybe like a, a fashion mannequin that changes its outfit depending on the weather or whatever, right? It's a way to, um, it's a way to have some type of computation for whatever your smart contract is. And if your smart contract is an NFT, then, then great. And for those of you listening who don't know what NFT means, NFT stands for non-fungible token which just means it's like a unique asset, right? So think like Pokemon card, think like collectible, baseball card, trading card. And that's usually what people are referring to when they talk about NFTs here. Also, I'd like to add with the whole non-fungibility, another thing to remember is that although that NFT or Pokemon card holds value, although it holds value, you can't go to Walmart, pick up a gallon of milk and try to pay with your Pokemon card or your NFT. Like that's not a legal tender, right? That's a whole nother reminder. Yeah. I can't go to the store. Like if I had the original Mona Lisa, I wouldn't be able to pay for my milk. I don't know why I would want to do that anyways, but. Right. I but I would like to. buy you the milk and just keep the Mona Lisa or like <laughs> yeah. a fraction of the Mona Lisa. Right? Yeah. If I was a store clerk and, and you were like, yeah, you want milk for this Mona Lisa? I'll just, I'll give you $10. Give me the Mona Lisa. You can have your milk. We'll, we'll call it a day. Um, but yeah. Milk so, that is $10. Sorry. Well, well, I'm gonna pay like what, fifteen dollars, twenty dollars for the milk, or for the milk and the Mona Lisa, whatever. Yeah, sure. I don't care. But yeah, so so Chainlink, it's more than just DeFi. It's really just anything in the smart contract realm. I love how you're phrasing it too. You're phrasing it very correctly too, which I, I think is great. You're saying like this developer tool because at the end of the day, you know that's really what this is. It's Chainlink, it's another developer tool. I think of these smart contract platforms as developer tools as well. These are tools to build these applications for people to have these decentralized autonomous agreements. All these different tools that keep coming out and keep changing and keep kind of building on the stack here are incredibly relatable to Web2. And uh, I'm going to focus a little bit on the Web2ers because I know a lot of a lot of you are listening. 
it's really the same. Like when we're talking about smart contract platforms, we're talking about the backends. So when we talk about Solidity, smart contract, we're talking about like Java, Python, Go, C, whatever. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about building with smart contracts and building with Solidity. Your front end is actually going to be pretty much the exact same. It just instead of calling an API to your backend, it's going to call an API to the blockchain and it's just going to read off whatever the state of that blockchain is. Yeah, you've absolutely nailed it. I mean, I think that's especially what I've seen, at least in our community, both from just like solo devs all the way up to devs who are working on the enterprise level. Like they use our tool for a lot of the front end, but, and that stays the same, right? Mobile web, that stays the same, but it's, it's the back end that really like the development environment changes significantly. And like, Surprisingly enough and awesomely enough, that's not a word, but yeah, we're able to interoperate with whichever protocol, right? And so let's also like, can you walk us through then what does the Web3 tech stack look like on the backend level, like just in general? And then we can even talk about also what is the tech stack for Chainlink? Like how, how was it built? Like back in the day, Slack was built in PHP, right? As an example, Whoa. right? Yeah, right. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> I know. We, we, we've been there. That's a, yep. That's a whole nother. But, and platform developers who are essentially WordPress developers, a lot of them are PHP developers, right? Navigate us through what was the tech stack for just like blockchain devs in general, and then just like Chainlink itself. Yes. And Sydney, what's this outer system? I didn't know outer systems had an ID. I kind of want to like, I know we're like in a call, but my, my developer instincts are tangling. I'm like, oh, yes. Go, just clickety clackety. Play with yeah. it. Clickety. Absolutely. Dude, I'll send you. I even have a video where I built an Ethereum wallet without systems. Really? Yes. That sounds pretty, yes. That sounds pretty I know. Like pretty clickety clackety. I'm trying to clickety clackety. Yeah. yeah. Clickety no, no, no. For that. real. All right, Sydney, well, you'll have to you have to point me to the resource later. What was the question? Oh, what, what does the tech stack look like? So yeah, so that's pretty much the tech stack though. So the front end, it's pretty much the most popular front ends right now are kind of the typical React JavaScript front ends, right? So there's a couple of really nice tools out there. There's one called Create ETH app, which is literally Create React app, which is really nice. It's got a whole bunch of plugins for you know building your front ends. And it also has a plugin to the graph, which is a, a way to like read data off your blockchain is pretty easy. So yeah, create ETH app. The graph is pretty good. I mean, there's a whole bunch of different tools for the front end. Obviously, this is actually why I kind of can't stand front end dev because there's like 50,000 of those. That's a whole another story. That also goes into why I don't like JavaScript, but let's not go there quite yet. So front end is pretty much gonna be the same. You're gonna use ethers or web3.js. Those are kind of the two most popular JavaScript packages for building your front ends and reading off chain. Then yeah, then you go to the back end. And like exactly what, what you were saying, Sydney, it's going to be a different environment just because you don't have kind of the ownership of your smart contracts of your backend as you kind of do in a traditional sense. Once you deploy, once you go to production, it's out there, right? And if you didn't explicitly say to your smart contract, you can do this, you can't do it. So it's, it's very like... It's very dangerous and enlightening and and, and just like it's, it's dangerous, but also thrilling at the same time to deploy to production because like you're sweating when you do it because you're like, okay, if this is wrong, I'm doomed. But this is actually why. So if, if this is wrong, I'm doomed. I love that. If this is wrong, you know, people's livelihoods are ruined. So it's really not something that is taken lightly by any serious dev or any serious project. It's not just... There's all these jokes about, yeah, just ship it, whatever. If you do that, you're especially if you're securing value, you're going to ruin people's livelihoods. And that's basically unacceptable. And, and that's kind of the the stance that we take, especially at Chainlink, you know, making sure data is really good, making sure 
everything is secure and everything is top notch. But so that, so that actually goes into the backend stack a little bit more is because it almost feels like audits are almost like a piece of the backend stack. Like you can't go to production without having your code audited. And by audited, we really just mean like peer reviewed by another company, right? That's really all audits kind of are. They're just these massive, incredibly expensive peer reviews by people who are trusted and people who really understand. But but yeah, your backend is really going to be Solidity. And it's going to be on whatever smart contract platform you kind of want. So this is something else to kind of keep in mind. All these backends, all these different blockchains are good at different things. So Ethereum is obviously the most popular. That's kind of like the ground zero for all these. It can be kind of classified as a general purpose blockchain because you can build really whatever you want on it. And it's created the EVM, the Ethereum virtual machine, which is what a lot of these other blockchains have kind of adopted as like a need to have to get any type of usability out of their their chains. But yeah, like more side chains and layer twos to help with the costs of operating on Ethereum because Ethereum has gotten really expensive lately. And that's actually one of the biggest challenges right now is how expensive the chain is just because it's gotten so much more adoption so quickly that the block space competition is really competitive. And so, you know, just doing everything's more expensive. So we are starting to see other chains gain some traction like Polygon, formerly known as Matic. They are working very quickly on what's called rollups, which is a way to basically scale out Ethereum without having like side chains. That's, that's a whole nother conversation explaining rollups, but that's really going to be your back end. Oh, so, so these rollups, no side chains. But the rollups are not side chains. Like Polygon is an example of a side chain. Arbitrum or an optimism are examples of rollups. They're they're a little bit different. They both approach scalability a little bit differently, but that might be a longer conversation. Then so then how I think another thing to keep in mind, like we've had a lot of different conversations with other dev tools, it could be Twilio, AWS, etc. And so as you're talking about this whole back and stack, like then what does the engineering team look like at Web3 companies, right? Is it very similar to traditional engineering teams or or does it get to a point where you literally have like Solidity devs as their own team? Are they integrated within other Web2 devs? You know what I mean? You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I think I know what you mean. And even QA is different at Web3 companies because of the auditing portion that you just mentioned. Yeah, yeah. Because So the QA, you can almost think of it as an extended auditing portion. But I mean, for the most part, yeah, it looks really the same as kind of any other company or, or even any other like open source protocol, right? Anybody can jump into these protocols. Anybody can contribute. There are those who this is kind of what they do. They're core. They're working on it. Yeah. They're working on a specific part of the smart contract. If there's other type of like analytics or front end components, they're working on those components. What the team looks like is really no different from like any other open source project. It's, it's really similar, but yeah. And just to kind of finish out the backend conversation currently, there are three really popular frameworks, kind of similar to, I was, I was telling you this before, kind of similar to like, like Spring for like Java or like Django for Python or like React for or Angular for a front end. And they have kind of what they call like smart contract deployment frameworks. And currently the three most popular ones are Brownie, which is a Python based framework, Truffle, JavaScript based and Hardhat, which is JavaScript based. I think right now Hardhat's probably easily the most popular because it's really fast. A lot of the top DeFi projects are using it, but, but Truffle and Brownie are, are fantastic as well. So, and that's really, I mean, the stack can kind of go on and on with the different tools you could integrate with, right? Like we just did a cool proof of concept with uh, with Filecoin and IPFS and Chainlink on the back end where 
you actually store data in like their decentralized storage platforms because storing a ton of data on Ethereum is actually really expensive. Obviously, Chainlink is, is a huge part of the stack. If you want to get data, you know, you have to get it. You want to get it through a decentralized secure Oracle, and that's going to still be on the back end in your smart contracts. But the list can kind of really go on and on with the different tools and protocols that you want to integrate with. So, I mean, I think it's absolutely necessary, right? Like, even if you take a look at the architecture for something like, again, like a decentralized peer-to-peer ride sharing, right? You still need to use AWS Lambda. You still have to use Google Cloud or some sort of like Firesource serverless database type things, but but those Web2 developer tools still needs to be incorporated within the stack of building building your smart contracts. Yeah, yeah, 100%. So it, it's something, <laughs> I put out a tweet once and I was like, hey, here's the full stack for blockchain. And I had like a ton of people respond, well, you forgot about this, you forgot about this, you forgot. And I was like, I, I know, I know. Yes, I'm sorry, you could use that too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's absolutely never endless. And I think for us on the technical or engineering side, it's so like, even in the beginning, you're just like foaming at the mouth. You are so excited. And I, I so, I so see you like you are seen. And my question is then it's like, why should like our grandma be excited about this? this Like if we were right, right. (laughs) Like how, like, like maybe DeFi isn't like the most enticing to like an a senior citizen, maybe, I don't know, they're like, maybe their portfolio is mostly in bonds or something. But like, if we're trying to explain to just a completely different audience, a older generation, who knows what it is? Like, why should grandma care? Grandma, you can make 20% returns in DeFi. Okay, great. <laughs> yeah, I, I think the answer to this question is, is really going to go back to the whole purpose of smart contracts in the first place. It's going to go back to the trustlessness. It's going to go back to having these these superior digital agreements, right? If you being able to say, hey, this is a this is a protocol you can't get screwed over on, that it's going to do exactly what it says it's going to do, to me, there's so much value added to that. This is an application that you can put your funds in and not have to worry that they're going to go away, right? It's You're getting this peace of mind, peace of mind and also this true like self-sovereignty over whatever, right? Self-sovereignty over your funds is kind of the easiest example. Just having your own wallet without even going to the smart contract bit is like, okay, great. Like I can send money to my friend and not have to wait three to five days. Great. Like I, this is great. And it doesn't have to go through a centralized intermediary. Grandma probably doesn't care about the centralized intermediary part, but she does probably care about not having to waste her entire day on the phone with some insurance person telling them that, no, they're not going to cover for whatever medical procedure that you're doing. To me, that's the value add right there. And that, to me, that's why grandma would care. I think there's absolutely the case that I think, yeah, I think it could be easily said that there's a lot of use cases for for people who are kind of interested in, in getting that 20% return, who are building these quant models on chain for doing kind of all these, you know, these things that quote unquote grandma wouldn't care about. But I think there are a lot of examples where grandma would care and make their lives a whole lot better. And I think that, that that's the stuff that I'm really interested in. And that's why I got into the space is, is building these tools that can have an impact on our everyday lives. And, and it's I mean, I, I'm an engineer, right? I'm a technologist. I like technology. I like stuff that does stuff, which is why I think at the beginning, I was like, oh, this Bitcoin thing doesn't make any sense to me, which obviously I've changed my tune a little bit as time has progressed. Yeah, I mean, that's what I'm interested in. I'm interested in in stuff that does stuff, technology that that can actually impact my life and, and make my life better. Oh, that's incredibly well said. 
I think there has been a transformation, right? A transformation anywhere from how technology is developed, again, from Web 2 to Web 3, there's a transformation of your own comfort level with new technologies. May it be against or pro Bitcoin protocol as an example, whatever that may be. But there's also like, I'm going to really take a spin on this. You know, usually when I like to wrap up, I'd like to understand your transformation too. Like just for fun, what was your first job in high school? Like, what was that first job? Because now, because today you're a developer. And yeah. when you, you were like just hitting puberty, a few, you know, a few pimples here and there. What was your first job? A few. I was a nerd. Are you kidding me? I had a bunch of odd jobs, actually. I, uh, this is such an interesting question. I did landscaping. I was a short order cook. I was a camp counselor. I mean, like, you name it. Like, I got calls sometimes at like three in the morning before school to go like shovel snow. It was really anybody who would give me money. I was like, yeah, sure. I'll do that. <laughs> well, so then how did you because like, I mean, look, Gen Z nowadays, like, did you know that 53% of Gen Z has a side hustle? 53%. That's a lot. Right. And it's a side, it's a side hustle. And they're all digital natives. Right. So my question is, how did you go from a line cook and a camp counselor to wanting to study computer science? Yeah. Oh, OK. Yeah, this is yeah, this is definitely more for the newer Web2 people. Oh, this is a great question. Yeah, uh, for me, I was just in awe of technology. And that's really what it was. So I, I didn't have a whole lot of fun technical gadgets growing up, actually. But I was like, this internet thing seems pretty, pretty cool. I really liked video games. <laughs> so I was like, oh, at least worst case scenario, I build some video games. And yeah, and I got to I got to college and I, I took some computer science classes. I was like, hey, this kind of makes sense to me. I'm good at this. This is fun. Let's do this. And after some time of, of, after quite a long time, actually, of like learning all this tech stuff, because like, yeah, like, I actually didn't even know how to type when I got to college. I had to learn. Wow, how to that's type. so impressive. That's really impressive. Wow. I don't know. If, a part of me thinks I, I probably should have learned that earlier. And maybe that was my stubbornness to learn typing. Because growing up in high school, I was like, I type like once every few weeks, like, why do I need, like, I type whenever there's like a paper due. That's it. Like I would, I didn't go on the computer. That's so funny. That's amazing. Wow. What a trans. And now look at you. Now you're so technical. I well, mean, well, yeah. Right. And it's funny looking back and I'm like, oh, wow. If I was like born now though, I mean, I would definitely know how to type because everybody now has like, if you don't have a computer, you're basically out of the loop, which is a whole nother conversation. But yeah, I just thought it was really cool. And I fell down the rabbit hole and I, I still liked, I, I got better and better at technical stuff. And and I still like talking to people and I still like being enthusiastic and I love people. I love helping people. And that's, I think that's how I got into the role that I am now where it's kind of this, I have to be incredibly technical. I have to be a master of smart contracts. I have to be a master of the technical craft, but I also get to interact with people and kind of be a master of like helping engineers be successful and, and teaching engineers as well. So this really wonderful mix of skills here. Yeah. And I think that that's the whole process of continuing, like on a general note, continuing your career as a developer is being able to understand what are the next toolings that I need to adopt? What are the next industries do I need to adopt? And also finding finding the right folks to really help with that, right? So what I'm going to do is definitely leave your Twitter, your links, all that so that folks can reach out to you if they're wanting to learn how to build more smart contracts, secure oracles with that, see if there's any kind of interoperability. But like I said, this has been an incredible, just a, such a fun conversation to explore the convergence of building a tech stack in both Web 2 and Web 3. And I appreciate all the like enthusiasm that you've shared. <laughs> yeah. I, I had to dial it back, Sydney. Like 
Thanks for jumping in and, and stopping me and slowing me down because I, I get I can get a little carried away here. I was like, we can have a three-hour episode on this. I mean, this is, and I do want to invite as we're wrapping this up. I'd love to invite Christina. Christina, are you there? Hello, Christina. Can you hear me? Yes. Welcome, Christina. Okay. Thank oh you. my gosh, I'm so ex- so not yet a developer, not yet a developer, but every day with every podcast that you're listening to, I think you are closer. And what were your thoughts about today's conversation when it comes to like this conversation versus all the other tech conversations that you've been on for the past two seasons? Like, what are your thoughts? I think the other ones I could understand better. (laughs) This one. We got too caught up. No, I had the website open and I was like trying to read along and understand what was happening, but it was mind blowing, I would say. <laughs> I love that. We just blew your mind. Wait, so like, but okay, so the other episodes, like, you know, Postman, Twilio, you like got it, right? Like, cause you- They were interesting. And like, I mean, obviously I don't really, I don't know much about, like, I'm not a developer. So it was very interesting, but this one, like, it really made me think and it was just mind-blowing. I think that's the best way I can describe it. <laughs> I love that. And I think Sydney's reactions are the best. Like seeing Sydney, her facial reactions when you were saying things, I think that made it even better. Oh, Sydney, we could record these and pop these on YouTube. So it was I just the, see, see your facial reactions here. Yeah, man. I don't know. I'm just a friend in a pocket, you know? You just gotta periodically you listen to me. We'll talk, talk with other devs about sex. And I think with that being said, we're at time. We're going to give the rest of the day back for all the other folks. Thank you so much for tuning in. Pat, thanks for joining. Christina, thanks for popping in. Thank you. All right. Take care, y'all. Wow. What an episode. Thank you so much for joining today. I am just so delighted to be able to speak to Pat about exploring developer stacks, both on a traditional Web2 basis, as well as a introducing Web3 technical stack into your daily workflow. Yeah, I'm just a super fan. I also loved that Christina was able to join us just to pop in. She's joined us through this whole journey of just exploring the origin stories of various developer tools. So I love having her perspective, although she's not an engineer, like, I just loved hearing like her reaction. And I think that's really what this episode and this season and this whole podcast series is about. Like, come hang out. Let's have a conversation about just the tools that we love. We love building different, different projects with all these awesome, awesome tools. I am just so delighted to be able to share these conversations with you. And if you found this valuable, please, we are still a nascent baby podcast. If you're like, yo, Sydney is ridiculous, you should definitely check it out and just hear and understand and learn about different technology stacks and exploring different toolings. Share this with them. I'm super excited to be able to just hang out with you guys. I would also say if someone is just new to blockchain. I I mean, this was like a pretty intro conversation of introducing blockchain into your development stack and into the stack of your developers as well, if you're working with devs. Again, super, super excited that you were able to join us today. I'll leave some resources in the show notes so that you can find what makes sense, what the heck we were talking about. And with that being said, I will just catch you guys next time. 